Let's go. Hello, and welcome to Sustain Open Source Design. Is it Sustain Our Design? No, it's Sustain Open Source Design. Yes, yes. Sustain Open Source Design. SOS. <laughs> what are you <laughs> Hello and welcome to Sustaining Open Source Design, possibly even Sustain Open Source Design. Never really sure which one we landed on. SOS Design Podcast, where we talk about the confluence of design and open source how they work together and what we could do to improve the state of design and open source and open source in design. Lots of fun. Just me today. This is Richard Litauer. Hello, everyone, as one of your hosts. But I have two guests to make up for the solo host. So very excited to have on the podcast today, Emilie Tromp, who is calling in from somewhere in France or the Netherlands. I should have asked. But very excited to have you here. And also Winfried Telanus. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Thank you both for coming on. How are you both doing today? Really great. Really happy to be here. Thanks and happy to be here from Amsterdam, actually. Amsterdam, the Netherlands today. Amsterdam is the best. I love it. All right. So both of you probably presented at FOSTEM this year in Belgium. But Errol Fox had invited you both on. Errol is one of our longtime hosts and panelists. And she has excellent taste in guests, which I'm really excited about. And both of you work at a thing called Privacy by Design. Tell me what that is. A nice big open question to start with. But it means when you start designing a system, when you start thinking about how should it work, and then really we're not talking about the visual design or only the visual design, but also really the system architecture, you start thinking, how do we meet privacy requirements? And one of the interesting things is that quite usually it's really approached as legal exercise. And then they fly in the lawyers, they say, create a nice privacy statement for us. Or maybe developers start implementing things like encryption of, on all kinds of places in the system. But it's really nice. And you can really make lots of improvement in privacy by design when you take a step back and Look at it in mid-border fashion. I like that. So, Winfred, you're a privacy consultant, right? So you work at a privacy company. You're a technical expert and expert on human rights and privacy in particular. Done a lot of stuff in e-health before, which is really cool. And you have an academic background that's done both like human studies and applied physics. And you've authored a lot of stuff on privacy by design. So everything you said makes a lot of sense to me. Emily, you have more of a social design strategy background. So you've been involved yeah, with a lot of right. researching so, projects. Cool. Exactly. How yeah. did you work together? We work together in large projects promoting public health and prevention through e-health applications. And we worked with a big consortium, also with technicians and developers. And I joined in the project as a designer to represent the end user perspective in the project. And I think that's where we developed this idea that you could approach privacy by design really as a compliance exercise, but we would like to argue that privacy by design should be approached in a different way, namely first defining the underlying privacy principles, which is more like answering the question, why are we implementing privacy or what experience would we like the user to have? For example, this could be the user to experience user agency or 
choice in what to share. And then following that, you could really define the underlying privacy principles. And they could be from the beginning be implemented throughout the whole technical architecture, as well as the user interaction of the design. So you're talking about the theoretical basis for understanding like what privacy is and how you think about it. You should think about all these concerns before you implement anything, before you design anything. Yes. Is that accurate? Yes, that's accurate. And from a social design perspective, this is a really logical view, but it appears to be that privacy by design usually is really more legal exercise. So I was actually surprised by that. Within this project, we developed this way of looking at privacy. And that's also where we encountered several different perspectives on privacy. For example, we encountered at least four different perspectives on privacy that were not understanding each other. And they were all using the same word privacy and they used it with very different connotations. I could tell about two of them, for example, the user perspective of on privacy is more implicating the user interaction of enabling privacy. For example, I am using an application and I experience privacy because I can share certain data or not. But then if you talk to developers, they're really having a technical perspective on privacy. The technical perspective would be more a concrete way that they are really thinking like, how can I implement a technical architecture that supports privacy? For example, when developers think about the criteria they have to consider when building an application. And then we discovered two more. I think Winfried is much more in a position to explain. (laughs) And it's really fun because I've worked a lot with lawyers and they're talking about how to state the permission question, if it's needed at all, or how to create a registry of data processing or things like that are really things that come from the GDPR and technical or legal demands. And they would use totally different language and have think about something totally different when you talk about privacy. I'm also have quite a bit of philosophical background. And I always ask the question, but what does this word really mean? And what do we mean with it? For example, depends on the project, how you can understand it. And many projects think privacy is about keeping data secret. But you can also give another views on it. And for example, about how to give agency to the users, how to enable them to make choices. And that's totally different. And other projects say, well, no, no, no. We're working with people who we have really hard time to make difficult decisions. So we should protect those users. And that's they're all different perspectives on privacy within the theoretical framework. And I think it's good to think about it like that. So you can make the choice from what are we doing here? What kind of privacy do we need? That's really interesting. Thinking about different perspectives. One of the questions that's coming to my mind is part of this is the open source podcast, right? So it's not just about making sure that your data is good for users on a platform, but it's about making sure that the code actually says that and making sure that other people can look at the code. Have you implemented privacy by design as a theoretical framework for designing something? In any open source projects, or have you talked to open source projects and how they should implement this? Or is open source part of the way that you implement better privacy by design? And that's how you think about it. The interesting thing is we created an open standard. Awesome. And that also gave a lot of challenges because the standard is quite abstract. It's not a product. And it's much easier to do privacy by design on the products than on the standards. 
that is going to be used in many different products. So that was quite a challenge on itself. Did you have any pushback when building an open standard from people who are interested in privacy by design by saying that by making it open, you're not making it private enough? No, we didn't. Okay, good. <laughs> Excellent. I worry because you said you work with lawyers a lot. And sometimes I find that people who are interested in privacy try to make sure that everything is behind some sort of wall so that not everything is accessible because then it's really easy to find where the flaws are. We've seen pushback before from open source apps, for instance. Like in Ireland, in Australia was a really good one. They made a beautiful COVID app, open sourced it. And then everyone's like, there are all the bugs. Then they had to backtrack the app real fast. And it was a huge issue for the developers and for the administration. So I was curious about the standard and the process of building it. Now you said you built an open standard for privacy by design. Oh, sorry, Emily, go ahead. I was just going to add to that, that the project we worked in was developing an open source standard, but the whole project was open source. So it was funded by the Dutch government. and. The whole idea was to start a transformation from health care to public health and prevention. And so we worked together with neighborhoods in all different kind of collaborations in the social domain. And also like really thinking about how can we implement e-health to promote health in a way. And therefore, we were really looking also into this open standard to create business models as well for e-health. Really like you say open project, we could internally share everything. You could still find on open Google Drive lots of internal documents because we wanted to be open and wanted to be transparent about what we were doing. And everything we published was also on the Creative Commons license. You mentioned earlier that you found different approaches towards privacy. And that it means different things to different people. And so when building a standard, it's really important that you have a shared context. As part of this open standard that you've built for privacy by design, how did you ensure that you took into account all the different definitions of privacy? Well, we really found out that we needed a way to bridge the gap in understanding between both the end users and the technicians and the developers of privacy. And we did this by finding the common ground of the reason to implement privacy in a system. And by talking about those reasons, reasons, so why are we implementing privacy? One can distill sort of the shared values, like the ethical ground for implementing privacy. An example of a reason is that you would want to gain the trust of users in a system, for example. Another reason could be that you would want to protect the end users, for example, because they are vulnerable. And in our case, it was a less usual reason because we wanted to give the user more agency by allowing the user to reveal the parts of their identity that they themselves wanted to reveal. That's really important because the onset of the program, the premise of the program was that idea that if people can make their own decisions about the health care, when they're not protocolized and standardized, but can create their own paths and make their own decisions there, that it would not only improve healthcare, but also make it much more efficient because there's lots of unneeded care given, very much money spent on things people don't really need and what don't fit to them. So the whole project started with the idea that people should get more agency. So that was really the ethical starting point of the whole project and a really important value. Might be a silly question, but... I love the idea of giving users agency 
And I like the idea of having them say, here's where I want to give and here's where I don't. But most users are also naive. And if you're doing privacy by design in the beginning, then that means they don't know who you are and you don't know exactly what their needs are going to be. So you have to adapt continually to what their needs are and what's going on in order to rethink about how you're going to frame it for the next users. Am I wrong? I think that seems like a very tough process. How do you make that easier? Well, actually, this was really part of the program that we had to figure out because we wanted to iterate on the design. So we had to test some concepts that we wanted to know. And we want to test them with end users who usually don't even use e-health at all. So we really had to improvise in this project and we found a really nice way to test our concept with end users because of course we had to have them envision a certain scenario in the future where they would actually be using e-health. So we developed a game called the privacy game. And it was really like setting the stage for people to envision themselves in a new scenario. And then we would change the privacy context within the game. So they would be confronted with a new situation and the same players. So they could actually evaluate their privacy choices afterwards together. So they have had both all experienced this new situation of confronting their privacy choices again. And so that would spark a really different discussion. One really think important part of your question is, well, somebody enters the system, how do you interact? And what we're really used to is that you go to a new site and then you can't do anything until you clicked on the login button. And then you get page, oh, you don't have an account yet. You have to make an account. Then you have to fill in everything about yourself. You don't know why. You don't know what you get in return for it. You don't know what they're going to do with it. And you just have to trust them and give them all that information. It's a bit like having a first date and really telling all intimate details about yourself. You don't want to do that. So this process is really totally lopsided. One of the principles we found, it is really an iterative process. You show a little bit, you see that the site is doing something useful with it, that you gain something from what you show. Then maybe you think, well, this is nice. And maybe I can gain more if you show a little bit more. Then the site shows, well, you can trust me with this data. And I can really get give you something back. In. So you have to slowly build up that trust. It's really an iterative process. And it's also... Really important that it's two-sided. That it's not just giving it and undressing and feeling naked in front of the site, but that it's really that the site also shows, well, this is happening. So you really get a system then that's not asking to make an account at first, but at some point say, well, if you at this point would like to come back and if you want to remember what you did up to now, then maybe may come in handy to make an account. Well, choose your own username, choose your own password, don't need to know anything more. Oh, well, it might be handy if we contact somebody else where you're now at. Well, then we need contact details. Maybe can you give us our contact details? So you are not making it one big question, one big privacy statement, but you're getting it into small pieces, iterative. And in that way, giving people also real choices because nobody reads 17 or 70 page privacy notice. That's not a real choice. 
But when you know, well, if I make an account now, then it remembers this and this and this, what I did, then you get further. And just to go on that argument that you make a system where the users can actually be naive about their privacy because you create consistency within the design and the system. So you really build up the interface from a more natural relationship, connection forming process. And a user can actually be naive because there's a consistency in the design and within the system. So it's not only like the experience of privacy within the interface, but also there's really no hidden pattern behind where the system is using your data. So it's not deliberately misleading you by upholding a sort of conception of privacy. And so we really say that if you want to create this feeling of trust with the end user, it has to be backed up with an architecture of privacy underneath and a buildup in the process of interface. Like what are you asking your users at what point in the process? So Winfried said, are you asking to build an account up front and asking all kinds of data or are you really building it up stage by stage? So you mentioned earlier, this is an open standard that you're making. I'm really curious about how that works in practice. I'm thinking about a past guest we had on who worked on menstruation apps, which is a thing which is really difficult with privacy. People don't want to share all about how they're menstruating or ovulating, particularly in places like the U.S., where there's really horrible laws that could have horrible influences on you if you share that data with a tech company that isn't good, the Zen shares with authorities. So my question is, how would someone say building that app just to make it real, implement privacy by design as a standard into their process? Do you have to start from square one at the very beginning and just redo everything? Or does the standard allow you to apply to current projects? And what does that look like? Yeah. My first thought is when you talk about menstruation apps or things like that, they are commercial gold mines because you can sell lots of menstruation products, yeah. do lots of work around fertility, whatever. So you learn a lot about people. It's commercially really interesting. So the first question is, how do you want to make money with this app? And really the first question you should ask. And I think that if you decide that you really want to sell your user's data because that's a nice financing and lots of people are interested in it, maybe then you should be really upfront about it and really be clear about what you're doing. But that's not, of course, the way we like to handle stuff. When you look at the standard we were building, we're taking a totally different approach. We really want to take a bit of a step back from, well, you, do you want to share this? You put it in your app, you have a relation with your app, and that app maybe helps you to tell you how you're feeling in each moment in the month, or app helps you to predict your cycle, or maybe to make you aware of anomalies or whatever. That's not a relation you have with the app. And do you want to share this data? can be interesting. It can be part of a bigger health picture, can be interesting for whatever reason to share it with somebody. Might be interesting to share it with your physician or with somebody who's close to you, where you really would like to keep informed. Well, then you have to make deliberate share decision. So you really have to make the decision. I want to share this data with this person, not make it an abstract decision. I want to be able to share this with doctors. No. I want to share this with my general practitioner or whatever. Or I want to share this with my best friends. 
So you really have to make a deliberate decision. And then you come back to the standards. They have to build the standard in such a way that each sharing has to be a deliberate decision. So in the standard we built, we don't use one overarching identifier for exchanging data. The first reaction of all programmers, architects was, well, let's use email addresses identifiers. It's easier. No, we don't want that. Because then you can't control anymore where your data is linked. So if you want to share it with one other party, then for that one sharing action, you create an own identifier. You can add some additional information to it that the other person can identify you or can know that you, for example, have a health insurance to get care from them or something like that. The bottom line is don't use identifier for one relation. When this app is sent to another one, one identifier. Other relation, other identifier. And that really cuts it into small pieces, but with cutting in small pieces, you get control. You are able to make the decision Who do I share with this? And it's not so that once you start sharing it, it's out of your hands. Those are great questions to ask when building something. So thinking about how to implement privacy by design into the thing that you're currently building. Um, And I think having privacy by design as a principle makes a lot of sense. I guess one of the questions I was trying to ask, which maybe I didn't elucidate well, was where can I see the standard for privacy by design and how do I apply it directly wherever I'm working? Because... Having it as a principle, I want to make sure privacy is there. That makes a lot of sense to me. And that's something I'm conscious about as someone who likes users and wants them to continue to be able to do what they do without having extra stuff. But I'm curious, how would I apply this standard in my own organization? Is there a website I can do? Is there a process doc that I can go through? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So to answer your question, that's really just still a work in progress. We are writing a paper on the whole process on this new approach on privacy by design that really looks into designing privacy from the why of privacy to the how, the interaction with privacy and to the actual concrete results of the privacy system and the user interface that all connect with privacy on design. However, it's still in a draft stage, so we cannot share it with any listeners yet, unfortunately, but we might be in the near future. But I must say, It really follows it. Also the reframing methods process in a way which I can share the website of. So I will share this in the show notes. And this explains more about the reframing method that we use at Reframing Studio. And it's very much about combining those different perspectives. From each of the perspectives, take a step back, have a look what are the principles behind it? What are the users looking here for? What do the technicians need to get going? What guidance do they need? What can you say from a theoretical perspective? What are the legal parts you have to take into account? Take a step back, go back, combine those more abstracted principles, have look for the common ground on a more abstract level, and then start translating them back, like we did also in the example, like the iterative process of trust and two-sided way of handling it. So that was really the process we did. And I think that's a really powerful way to approach privacy by design. And not to forget to put the end user central, like what is the experience of the end user and how can we design for that? And also talk to them, like really go out in the field and talk to people, even if it's on abstract matters of privacy, where first you would think like people just say like, oh, boring. 
But if you can get this discussion started on what would be a nice reason for you to share certain data or not, then you have a totally different discussion already. It's also really fun. We really went into neighborhood centers and talked to people. And quite often, they really couldn't imagine what we were talking about. And then we start playing the game. And then well, they said, oh, well, privacy. They know everything about me. There's no privacy anymore. It's why am I here? And then people say, no, I don't trust them. They know everything about me. And I don't tell them anything. And I don't want to share any data with anybody because they can't be trusted. And then you started playing the game and challenging them to make privacy choices and to rethink the privacy choices. And then we had a more or less open discussion again for how are you thinking about it now? I think it was really interesting to think about privacy like this. And I'm really going to think a lot better about the choices we're going to make. That was really fun to see, but it can be really challenging to really face the end users. We learned so much from it and it helped us so much to create this project. But we really had to think very well about how do we approach them. And I really liked also the idea of most advanced yet acceptable with a really nice design principle. The idea behind it is you want to innovate, you want to make something new and you want to develop a really nice privacy-friendly system. But if you make it too complicated, you lose the people. And you have to try to get it as fast as possible and really help people to make it acceptable for them. And we also did testing on the system. And matter of fact, Emily did the testing. That was a really nice privacy-friendly login system. And at the end of the testing, the people said, well, this was so complicated, it has to be privacy-friendly. I think a lot of what you're talking about with users and having them come away feeling like, oh, okay, this makes more sense, privacy. It sounds more like educating than anything else, right? So a lot of educational work has to go on with not just user interviews, but also with the users themselves who you don't interact with. One of my questions that comes out of that is it's really easy as a designer to have high-minded values and goals. To say, I'm going to make the most privacy-centered system, the most user-centered system. Everything will be beautiful and daisies will bloom and it'll be great. But it's often hard as a designer to have the clout politically and in your organization to make sure that design principles are kept in place and go all the way through the development process and go all the way through the hierarchical capitalist process, which governs most organizations, right? At some point, the money needs to be made somewhere. So one of the questions I have is, in your work implementing privacy by design and developing a standard on it and talking to users, what work did you have to do to convince other people in your organizations that it's a good idea? And how would you suggest other designers do that? I think if you work really from within, first define the privacy principles in this case and really define the interaction that you would like to achieve with the end users and also the, all the other relevant stakeholders within the process. And then you design the end product that you have a really good base of argumentation to work it all out in detail. So it really works as an argumentation for your design. And then of course you would have to like be able to monitor in the process, like does everybody understand this basis and does it, do they, can they translate it 
into what it means for their part of the process. So as a designer, I'm usually joining a process until the concept of a product, but I always offer to be there to explain in later stages so that the details of this vision in the design will still be implemented. And it's really a base for people to feel and understand the preferred interaction or the preferred experience of the end user. And once they do, it really helps for them to also work this out into the details. And remind your stakeholders all the time about the principles you agreed on. And what's really interesting, if you know the principles, if you make this design, if you do this consequently, then do it all the way. Comes really in the easy to implement it in the GDPR because much of the demands of the GDPR are about making deliberate choices, being able to explain the choices you make. And if you don't know for sure, should we go for privacy, should we go for commercial interests, and how do we define a commercial interest? And when, when it becomes a messy process, then it becomes really hard to have a good story for the GDPR. But if you stick to your principles, if you think through at the beginning, what are we going to do and stick to it, then it really becomes an easy story for the GDPR too. I really like this work. It seems really important. It seems really cool. So you said you made it under an open standard, but you also gave a talk at Boston about this, correct? Yes. Did you have any special notes in the talk about reaching out to open source designers or to open source developers about how they could implement these principles into their work? There are some sides to it, but I really think that the methodology, it's open, it should not be closed. And I think it's maybe even easier for open source developers to work through the methodology because lots of projects have quite clear stated principles as guidelines for what commits do we accept or not, for example. And that may be, well, very good to put some of those privacy principles with it, and that makes it lots easier to put that all the way in your designs. So that's really something I would like to give to open source designers. But also, when it's open source, it's much easier to show also. Maybe you need some technical knowledge, but people can really see that what you're doing in reality is what you show also that's aligned. So that the underlying data and underlying processes indeed what you promise in the user interface. And that's really important part to it. And even when you would like them to have privacy consultants, have a look at the system and write something nice about how it fits in the GDPR or whatever, when it's open source, that will be so much more easier. I love that. That's awesome. That's a great summary. I really hope that you're able to continue to help out open source designers win this with this. And I look forward to hearing more about how that works. Where can I learn more about privacy by design right now? Where's your GitHub, for instance? There's a GitHub of standards, and there's also quite a few Creative Commons publications about the SAMA beta project. We will put some links in it to the chat. And there you can already find something. I gave on several aspects of it, talked at Forstam at several occasions, and also, for example, at Amsterdam Privacy Conference. So, and that's all open published, so you can have a look at that. But quite interestingly enough, what we have been doing here is not really often published about. It's quite novelty in the privacy world even. So you can go bleeding edge. 
Awesome. Guests, listeners, you can find that information in the show notes at sosdpodcast.sustainoss.org. And we'll put the show notes on when this goes out. So feel free to go check that out there. You can also look for Winfred and Emily, reframingstudio.com and privacycompany.eu. This was excellent. Thanks so much for sharing about where we can access that and putting those links in the chat. That's really awesome. Where can people follow you two online? Do you have any blogs or websites or social medias that you want to share? Emily? I was just thinking, no, I don't have any blogs. Not so much social media. That's great. That's probably better for your mental health, to be honest. Winfred? If I have anything to mention, it will either be on Mastodon or on LinkedIn, where you can find me. But I'm not that active lately. Yeah, since Twitter died, I've actually been a lot less active and it's been excellent. So... I feel that. Thank you so much. Yes. Cool. Well, one thing that you often do on social media is you ask for what people are interested in and what they think should have more light shed on them, which is great because that's this part of the show. Welcome to Spotlight. Spotlight's the end of the show where we say projects, people, or things that we feel are just awesome and other people should know about. Traditionally, the host goes first. So my Spotlight today is going to be Privacy Badger, which is a really sweet extension or add-on to or the Chrome or Firefox or whatever browser you're using probably, which just makes your browsing more awesome. Please get Absolutely. Privacy Badger all the time. Yes, it's the best. Love it. Winfred, what's yours? Well, I really love the book and it really helped me quite a lot. It's called Space Between Us by Cynthia Coburn. And it's really about something totally different about women peace groups working together across the borders of a war zone. But the interesting thing is there are some insights in it, both on how people cooperate, but also referring to the idea of identity and how you handle identity, which is, of course, very important in computer science. And the ideas laid out there, I use them all the time to explain privacy. It's really, say, Travis short about identifying yourself as or being identified as by somebody else. I like that. Thank you so much. Awesome. And Marie? I would like to spotlight a graphic novel that I recently read. It's from 2022. It's written by Lea Murawiecz, French woman. And she made this graphic novel in French called Le Grand Vide or The Big Void. It is translated. And it's really a beautiful graphic novel just to see. But it's also very interesting to read because it's really about a society where privacy is deadly It's all about being visible and getting attention from others. So it's a dystopian society where everybody puts their name as big on billboards as possible, because if nobody knows your name, you're vanishing. So it's a really beautiful book. And it's also a really good topic relating to this whole podcast. Awesome. Those are two great suggestions. Love graphic novels. Thank you so much for coming on. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed this. If you have any thoughts on it, do let us know. You can email the host at podcast at sustainoss.org. That'll go to us. You can also go to sosdpodcast.sustainoss.org to see the show notes or the discourse on our sustained sites, discourse.sustainoss.org to have a chat. We'll open up a topic there about this particular podcast if you want to talk about it there. We'll also share it on Mastodon and Twitter and probably LinkedIn and all the cool things. So do go ahead and share those things. If you have any other thoughts that you want to reach out to Emily or Winfred, well, their emails are probably available on their sites. And so do check that out or reach out on social or LinkedIn. 
which works really well. Finally, if you like this podcast, please like it on Apple or Spotify or whatever horrible large company runs your podcast providers. That would be really great. And I think that is it for today. So Winfred, Emily, thank you so much for coming on. This was excellent. It was a really cool project. I really hope that the principles continue to be applied more and more and that more people become interested in this amazing work. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much, Richard. It was really fun.